So you heard Molly read some of the most amazing words in the Bible, Psalm 139. Now think about this statement that we make, all right? I I want you to think about the context of a certain statement we often make. It's a colloquialism in our world. We go like this. Well, I'm only human. I'm only human. Now, think about when we make that statement. Children, I'm sorry. Out you go. There they go. I keep doing that. They need to get me a big sign that says, children dismissed now, or a little electrical shock machine or something. That I am only human. Now, when do we make that statement? When do we say something like, well, I'm only human? When do we do that? Huh? When you mess up, right? When we mess up, when we make a mistake, when we fail, we say, well, you know what? I'm only human. We usually reserve that statement not for our finest moments. But to God, it means something different. To God, being human is not an excuse for mistakes. Rather, it is a declaration of God's glorious intent. Because it is glorious to be human. If it wasn't glorious to be human, why did Jesus become one? If it wasn't glorious to be human, why did the Word become flesh and dwell among us? And we beheld His glory as a human being. That's really important for us to remember when it comes to worship. And I can't think of a passage of Scripture in this day and time that may not be more necessary to read, reflect upon, and internalize than the words Molly read to us from Psalm 139. So you can turn there to Psalm 139, whether in your physical Bible or on your device this morning, You need to, and I need to, take these words in deeply. I've been reflecting and reading and thinking about them all through the week. We need to hold them tightly. We need to turn them over in our minds and ask God's Spirit to plant them deeply in your heart. Because in a world where we often feel unseen, unheard, and unvalued, here is the Almighty God who places supreme value on being human. And we hear so clearly that we are seen. Hear that. We are seen. We are heard. We are known. Now, all of that is rooted, of course, in what we didn't read today, the part from Psalm 139 we didn't read, Let's put up verse 13, I think we have. Next slide, here we go. Let's read these words together. Here we go. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Now why does the psalmist know that? Because his recognition of his own glory 
as a human being. It's a picture for us of a God who personally crafted us as the people we are. And when we know that we as human beings are this important to him, that changes what worship means. You say, Pastor Jeff, you said at the beginning of this, this is one of the most important passages to read today. Let Let me share something with you. Let's go this way. Consider this. I don't know if you've been following the last couple weeks in the news cycle, but the upside and the downside of artificial intelligence is dominating the news. Dominating it. The OpenAI app, ChatGPT, is trending. Like, unreal. Now, GPT stands for Generative Preconditioning Transformer. That's a mouthful. It simply is this. These systems produce human-like responses, human-like responses, to user prompts based off of massive databases of information. Now, this is how, lack of a better word, trending this is. ChatGPT was released in late November, and in five days, it reached one million users. Now, to gain perspective, think about this. Instagram took two and a half months to reach one million users. Facebook took 10 months. By the end of January of this year, so two months approximately, by the end of January, ChatGPT had 100 million users logged. Is anyone else familiar with ChatGPT here, by the way? I just want to see... Raise your hand. It's okay. It's safe. All right. I am too. You want to see? I have it on my phone. I have it on my phone. I do funny things with it. Like uh, yesterday, our daughter, our granddaughter Lucia was with us, and I said, I asked it this question Why would Lucia decide that El Taco Loco food truck will be her favorite place to go eat? And it gave me this great answer that says, I can't answer that. Right? So I, I just have fun times with it. But my brother in law, Bill, is fascinated with ChatGPT. Him and I have had extensive conversations. It's captured the headlines for various reasons, but most because of the debate around the nefarious and unethical ways it can be used. For example, for all of our teachers here, you probably know where I'm going to go. In educational circles, students have been found writing term papers using ChatGPT and submitting them as their own work. Don't. I'm just looking at this group of young ladies who are sitting by our next generation pastor. Nope, they're all going like this. Let me look at some of these older students who might be a little lazier. And Yeah. But think about that. And so this has become this real challenge in educational circles and other circles. My brother-in-law's fascination, interestingly with it, is has been focused on how to use this technology for good. For example, to see the other side of an argument. And so creating opposing questions into this so you can try to have a different understanding. But then there's also this. There's debate around what's called Bible GPT. And I would encourage you to Google an article, all right? So you got to write this down or remember it. It's called Robot Church Fathers. 
robot church fathers. And I'm not going to go all into that. Some of the statistics comes from that. But it would be worth to read the article by Adam Graber and um, think about what you think about artificial intelligence in the Bible. But I decided to try an experiment, you see, and I asked Chat GPT to write a sermon. A sermon based off of Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. My question to it was, which is, blessed are the pure in heart. My, my question was, please write a sermon based off of Matthew 5, 8 from a Wesleyan perspective. And you know what? In one minute, it wrote that sermon. Banged it right out. And I went, I'm done. Time to go have some coffee. No, I, did, I didn't do that. I and then, I promise you, this sermon is not from ChatGPT. Chat, I promise you. But here's what I discovered. I, I, I read this sermon. It was, it was very logical. It was formulated perfectly. It was longer than mine. But check this out. It was grossly missing one thing. When I read through this, I read through that sermon and went, wow, that's interesting. It was, it was totally missing the human element and the human context of a sermon I would write. Well, Andrew Root, Dr. Andrew Root, has studied the realities of church in the secular age. And he's spoken at length about concerns and challenges about generative AI, and he expresses concerns about it and the potential that it has to give up key aspects of being image bearers, namely being creative and expressive. He said the reason that there should still be some kind of yearning for searching for some transcendent call we are still the weird animals who write poetry and create artistic expressions. Well, my worry is, is what happens to the human spirit? It becomes harder for us to reach for something beyond ourselves. What if there's no reason for me to create anything since I could put it into an AI generator? What's the point of trying to be authentic and mine the most creative part of yourself you will never be more creative or as fast as artificial intelligence. So what's the point? I'm a fairly curious person. So I decided to have a conversation with two experts in this area. One was my 15-year-old granddaughter. And the other was a 14-year-old that I know. And I had these conversations over the weekend with them. And what was interesting to me is both of them expressed two concerns. One of them was, what happens when we no longer have art, true art? Because I was informed that there is AI out there that is now creating art in just moments and being sold online. So one of the things they expressed was that. And the other thing they expressed was the concern about Whoever gets to control the data determines some things. Why am I talking about this today? Why am I saying so much about it? 
Chris, could you think of a passage of Scripture that is more necessary for us to read, reflect upon, and eternalize than the words that have been read for us this morning from Psalm 139? You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Why... Does all of this matter? And what difference does it make when it comes to us thinking about our worship training manual that we're going in and out of this summer? Because what happens, another question, what happens if we give up being bearers, image bearers? What does that mean? What happens if we reduce life down to efficiency and information and production and performance and, and the ends justify the means? Because that's what happens with something like this. What happens? The deep image of God that dwells in us, the ability to create and to express and to imagine is blunted. And along with it, our capacity to worship is blunted. You see, we need to long for the transcendent. We need to long for relationship beyond ourselves and above ourselves. And next week, we're going to talk about the God who's worth worshiping. Why is he worth worshiping? We need to know someone beyond us, who sees us, who values us, who knows us, and who cares for us below the surface. I don't know about you, but I'm so tempted to always live on the surface. So much of life is about the surface. But being made in the image of God takes us to the place of depth the image of God. Knowing someone knows us, cares for us below the surface. I think one of the coolest scriptures in the Bible is found in 2 Chronicles 16.9. One translation says it this way, the Lord's eyes scan the whole world to strengthen those who are committed to him with all their hearts. Did you wake up this morning thinking that God is scanning your world? That God is looking for you He's looking for you. You see, when the world is reduced to simply an algorithm that imitates human life and expression, removed is something really important, and that's this. Removed is the safety of looking deeply. If we are most comfortable with living on the surface, and efficiency and information are how we live, which is very easy in a world where we're trained to scroll and even rather than send words, we send emojis, right? I'm, I know I'm, I'm really, I have some really cool emojis on my phone and I, 
I'm really guilty of sending them too. But if we're so committed to that world, we will never get down to looking into the deep places where our most human selves are discovered, which is why these words from Psalm 139 are so critical. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me. Know me. Know my anxious thoughts. What a great prayer for a world that's very anxious. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. How do you respond to those words? You see, we can read those words in one of two ways. We can read them as threatening and with fear. If we live at the surface always, these words can feel threatening, threatening. The idea that anyone, let alone God, may discover some aspect of our lives that we hide behind with the efficiencies of the world around us is fearful. What happens if the truth is actually known about me, especially by God? I have a hint. It's too late. He already knows. But what happens? So that's one way to read these words, or there's a second way to read them. We read these words as safe and liberating. Because we determine that we will live life as the full humans we are without pretense. In relationship with this God, the God who searched me, the God we can say this to, you know me. It's so much easier to live at the service, so much easier to deflect what's true about me out here. But you see, these words remind me how safe it is to come to God and say, you know me. He's the one inviting me to that. Now, why is it safe? Because first of all, he's all-knowing. To be known by God and to know we are known by God allows us to be fully present to God in turning toward Him, whatever's happening. We can turn towards Him, fully present to Him, to authentically follow Jesus. I was thinking about this and I was thinking about, well, where, where does this like really land in my life, right? Well, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, Jesus says this, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? By the way, if you haven't gotten the app Merlin yet, get the Merlin app. It's a free app, right, from Cornell University. I have it on my phone. I, I tracked 12 birds today, listening just to their sign, you, their sound. You just have to hear the red belly woodpecker, right? But it makes me think about this. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? 
are not those 12 birds I listened to today like really not sold for a lot? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. Some of you are looking at me funny. It doesn't take God long to count my hair. Some of you, it takes him a really long time. But hear that. Don't be afraid. He knows so much about us. Don't be afraid. It can be a pretty intimidating idea, this idea that God knows everything about us, but Scripture communicates the level of intimate knowing that God possesses when it comes to each one of us. And when we are aware of His comprehensive knowledge of us, this is the place of safety because pretense is removed. And I can come to God with the best of myself and the worst of myself. And the best part is God always comes with the good of who God is. He always comes with the redemptive self. He always comes with the transforming self. He always comes with the forgiving self. He always comes with the convicting self that finds out what I need done in my life. And he never leaves me where I am, but invites me to go with him to what he wants me to be. That's why this is so safe. The idea that, that God can know me creates an openness before God. No fear. It's also safe because he is ever-present. Verse 7 says, where can I go from your spirit and where can I flee from your presence? I was thinking about some words from my favorite, one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard. It's one of those thoughts that I try to get my head around, especially when it seems God is so absent. Look what he said. Next slide, please. Jesus brings us the assurance that the universe is a perfectly safe place for us to be. That's really contrary to how we view the world in our anxious lives. Now, Carol Lorenz responds to that, and she says this. Such a statement seems hopelessly naive. I love that. Scattered among the cat videos in my social media feed, I find cancer updates, terrorist activity reports, an expose about police misconduct, local flood warnings, and a video explaining how to use your belt to barricade your classroom door in the case of an active shooter. The universe doesn't feel safe at all doesn't. That's a statement made by a human being. That's a statement made by any human being when facing the hurricane force winds of an unsettled world. It is why human beings, image bearers, need to remember that we are known, and it also means we can remember that we are not alone in a world like this. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. He is there. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The message paraphrase says the word made his place, set up shop in the neighborhood. He's with us. Emmanuel. God is with us through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit as we anticipate the day when he makes all things right. So Carol Lorenz goes on. 
Some of the most debilitating anxieties are the fears that we are alone, that our suffering is pointless, or our future is hopeless. These words do not ask me to pretend there is no valley of the shadow of death. This isn't about looking through rose-colored glasses. It reminds me that God is with me even there and that his goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and then some. So what does all of that mean for us as worshipers? It means this. We then are free. We are free to come openly and fully to God. No pretense. We are free to be known by God and to know we are known by God. And that allows us to be fully present to the God who is turning toward us. Thereby we can turn toward him. And you see, that's really critical when it comes to worship. As Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God has very little desire for our surface-level religiosity and worship. Very little desire. He's tired of our cultural Christianity. He wants to go deep. You see, we are free to come openly and fully to God, to be known by God. And that is so critical. And in that sense, we then are free to be who we really are. The image bearers of God. Truly present to the one who is present. The same God who has fearfully and wonderfully made us. The same God described this way in verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So as you walk through the darkness of the valley of the shadow of death even, the light of Jesus can be with you and with me. Now I come with relief to the one place I can be the most human, the one place I can even be the worst human, where I can come with my greatest fears and my anxieties and even my failures, and I can come with my greatest hopes and my dreams and my best highlight reels. And as I come, I can be authentically me, myself. I can come before God as I am and not as I am not. The God who loves me with an everlasting love, not to be scourged, but to be given life. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. Oh God, I have them. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You see, that's the end game. Lead me in the life that is eternal right now. This isn't a place of fear and bondage. This is a place of love and liberty. This is the place of true worship. So as our worship team is coming, I have a question. 
So what? Now what? Now what? Well, come as you are. Come with what you are. Come. Some of the most amazing words from Jesus' mouth were these. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But he just says this, come to me. And by the way, that's not a statement. And when I say come to him, that's not a statement about where you are in relationship with Jesus. That's not a statement saying, come to me. You, if, if you've never invited Christ to be your Savior, come to me. That's not what this is about. He says it to all of us. Wherever we are on the spiritual journey, the person here who's walked decades for Christ, loving him with all their heart, and the person here who's not even sure if he's relevant. Doesn't matter. He says, come. Come just as you are. Don't come as you're not. Don't come with pretense. Don't come shellacked with your religious history. Just come as who you are and worship me. So we're going to sing that song, Come As You Are. Somewhere in the midst of this sermon, my confidence is that the Holy Spirit has been tapping on your heart and on mine. Below the surface, the point of motivations, the point of desires, the point of temptations, the point of shame, the point of regret, the point of deepest joy. He's tapping. You just have to do one thing, I just have to do one thing. Come just as I am. As we're singing this song, if you'd like to come and just kneel and ask God to meet you where you are, wherever that is, it might be you're overwhelmed with the joy of what he's doing in your life and you just want to say, Jesus, I just want to come and praise you. It might be that you have a fear that's just crippling you, an anxiety that's blocking you, or a sin you just need to be forgiven of. He just says, come as you are. Come as you are, not as you're not. Get over that fear of what other people think. Get over that fear that, you know, I'm going to fail again. Come as you are. So you're welcome to come and kneel, spend some time talking with the Lord who is present. But I invite us all to come comes to us. I know you, he says. I see you, he says. You can't escape my presence, he says. Which means his love is ever present and turned toward us. 
So Jesus met a blind man. What do you want me to do for you? Let's stand together. So we serve the God who we not only go to, but who comes to us. So wherever you are today, go from here and just come to him as you are. And give him not what you don't have, but what you do. And he will meet you with who he is. Come to me. So I pray today, as we go from this place, receive this benediction. May the God who knows us and sees us and loves us, may our God meet us right where we are. And may we find new freedom to come just as we are and find strength, peace, hope, forgiveness, comfort, new life, and renewed life. May our God grant us his shalom in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Go in his peace.